Our look at the pastoral epistles as they are known, these three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus that are uh, written to two pastors, Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus, and Titus, a pastor at Crete. And yet what we have seen over the last uh, several weeks as we have gone through these three letters is that these letters aren't just written for pastors. While there is certainly a lot in here for a pastor to take to heart and to be encouraged by and challenged by, there is also uh, much here for the church in general for us to understand what our mission is, what Christ has done for us, and where we are to go. And so this morning we continue that look as we look at First Timothy, or sorry, First Timothy, Titus chapter 2. Um, last week we looked at leadership in the church and how God has organized His church and what He says is the best way to do that. This week we look at the grace of God and how we live in light of that grace. And so if you are able, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Titus chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Lord, this wonderful word that we have in our hands that tells us of this incredible God who is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, who desires to have a relationship with us, who desires to be a part of our daily lives, who desires for us to have life and have life abundantly, who desires for us to know contentment and satisfaction in Him who desires for us to join Him in a 
new earth and a new heavens that are perfect, who desires for us to live forever. For this word that tells us that we have rejected that, that we all have been rebels, that we have all been traitors to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that we are all in need of grace. Father, I pray this morning that we would be reminded of these truths, and Lord, that we that have placed our faith and trust in you would rejoice in the reality of your grace and your love, and that if there be any here that have never heard this, or that this morning that you and your in your wisdom and in your mercy would open their hearts for the first time to accept this message, Lord, that there would be great celebration over one who has found you. Father, I pray, Lord, this morning that you would do work that only you can do through your Holy Spirit in our midst. And we pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Paul says in verse 10 of our text this morning that we are to act a particular way that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That when I think, when I read those words, I, it, it reminds me kind of of a wreath. And this, this may be a, a weird analogy, but I, I want to draw this picture for you. It, you put together a wreath, and maybe it's made out of evergreen boughs or, or twigs or vines or some other, uh, some other thing that you bind and you make into that familiar shape of a circle. And just as looking at it by itself, everyone kind of knows what that is. They understand what it is. And in and of itself, it may be quite beautiful. But for the most part, we don't take just the simple wreath and, and hang it on our door, but we adorn it, so to speak, right? We put a bow on it, or we add some pine cones to it, or some bear, red berries, or we add flowers to it, or we adorn it. We make it more than what it would be just normally. And then we take that wreath, once it's been adorned, once it's been decorated, and we hang it in a place where it can be seen and appreciated. In the same way, I think Paul is speaking here that God has given us the truth of salvation. He's given us the truth of grace. He's given us the truth of Himself and how we relate to Him. And He has put together this wreath. And it's good and it's beautiful. And then in His great wisdom, He has chosen to take us who believe in Jesus Christ and place us on that wreath that the grace that He has done in our lives may adorn the truth of what He has already done. Our lives become a testimony of the, the underlining truth that He's put together. And then He takes that truth and He takes our lives that have been placed upon it. These lives of grace, these lives of faith, and He places them in places where they can be observed and appreciated. That other people may look at our lives and say, that is what I need. 
That is what I want. This is not to say that our lives are perfect. Certainly they are not. They are not to say that our lives are without worry and concern at times. Certainly that happens. They're not to say that they're not without grief. Certainly they are. But it should be that the Christian life is different when it approaches all of those things. And in a way that is a stark difference from the rest of the world. A way that is even, even in our hard times, in a way that is attractive. Paul says we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To take this beautiful truth that we've been given and to allow it to come through our lives in a particular way. How does that happen? Well, in verses 1 through 9, he begins to lay that out a little bit. He speaks to six groups. He speaks to six groups. He he starts with older men, then he goes to older women, then he goes to younger women, then younger men. Then he goes to those who are servants of God, and then he goes to those that are servants of men. It's an interesting pattern that we have there in this chapter. As he gives instruction of how Titus is to teach them and to, yes, disciple them, and how they are to live these lives that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. No matter what group you are looking at, though, there are several things that come through as themes in those first nine verses. One is that we are to have lives of self-control. Lives of self-control. We see it with older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Older women are to uh, be reverent, and they are to teach younger women to be self-controlled. Younger men, going on farther down the passage in verse 6, younger men are to be self-controlled. We're to teach a model of good works. We're going on down to verse 12 that we are, it's training us, grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live in self-control. Over and over again through this passage, we see the word self-control appear time and again that we as Christians, that those that profess our faith in Jesus Christ, part of living differently is that we rein in those passions of the flesh that so easily get us in trouble. I was reading this last week about a a young lady, it was an interview, and and this young lady was a a celebrity in our culture, and she was talking about some of the changes that she had made in her life. And one of the things that kept, she kept saying was, life is too short not to enjoy myself. Life is too short not to be true to who I am. Life is too short not um, not to live for fun. And as I read that interview and I I saw the changes that she was making in her life, I began to think to myself, how sad that she has missed a basic truth, that there is more to life, that we have not been created just for those things. Certainly, becoming a Christian is not a drab thing. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we give up all pleasures and that we have no fun and that we can't laugh and enjoy ourselves. In fact, I have found quite the contrary to be true. 
The more and the closer I get to Jesus Christ, the more enjoyable life is. The more satisfaction I have in my life, the more I laugh, the more I have joy. So we live differently. We live lives of self-control. As is often the case, the Word of God is the best uh, commentary on the Word of God. And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul speaks of this self-control again in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul takes this idea of self-control and he brings up the picture of an athlete. We just got done uh, with the Olympics not that long ago, and you hear some of the stories of the things that they do, the training that they go through, the hours of, of helping their body to be in control of every movement. You watch them do certain things, and you're like, how can the human body possibly react that quickly in that situation? And it's because they, their body has been trained. It's been put under self-control. You hear them talk about, some of them, I always laugh that they're like, what are you going to do after the Olympics? And they're like, the first thing I want to do is like go to McDonald's. Because they have put their body in such a state that they have controlled their desires to go have food like that, that the rest of us probably don't even think twice about. They say, no, I know that's not, as, I know that's not good for my training. I know that's not good for my body. I'm going to resist that thing for a time for a period, so that I may be at my best. And they do it all, as Paul says, for a perishable wreath. They do it for a piece of gold that they wear around their neck. Some do it so that they may fail to get that gold. How much more than Paul is saying, should we as Christians who have this incredible eternal victory before us learn to control our passions and our desires that we may not be disqualified? That we may adorn the truth, the doctrine of God well so that others may see it and desire it. We're to live lives of self-control. We're also to live lives of discipleship. Live lives of discipleship. You see in Titus, back going back to Titus chapter 2, that they are to teach sound doctrine. They are to, uh, the older women are to teach the younger women. That uh, Titus himself is to teach with integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. In verse, going to the end of the, the chapter, verse 14, 15, that they are to declare all things, to exhort and to challenge, to rebuke. We are to live lives of discipleship, and that means to invest one's time and energy in another. For our own discipleship, that time and energy goes into Jesus Christ learning more, desiring more from Him so that we may look more like Him. But we are also to live lives that are pouring into someone. To pour time and energy into someone else that they may look more like Jesus Christ. And in turn to allow someone to pour into us. All of these things work together. 
to, to make a church that lives out discipleship, one person pouring into another, and that person then pouring into another. And so that begs the question. That begs the question, who is it that you are discipling? For some of you, it is children and grandchildren, and that is amazing. That is our first missionary field in many ways. To disciple well those that God has entrusted to us in blood family. To help them look more like Christ. I think of my own daughter, and she doesn't understand much right now. She knows the word get away. That's our new thing. But she, she is not yet ready to begin to understand the truths of the gospel. She's just not there. But she knows the song, Jesus Loves Me. And she knows Buck Denver and what's in the Bible. And she sees those things, and we try to put those things in front of her because it's the beginning steps. But I can't wait. I can't wait. I know it's hard. I understand that. But I can't wait till we get to talk her and I, about some of these great depths of Scripture. For her to ask difficult questions and me go, I don't know, go ask your mom. But to, to live life with her in that way. And that's a pleasure and it's a privilege that we should take seriously. But we as a church have opportunities to disciple others as well. Who else are you discipling? Is there someone else that you can point to that you can say, I am pouring into them that they may look more like Christ, that they may be able to serve Him well? Who is it that you can point to and say, I am allowing them, they are pouring into me? They're a, a mentor, a close friend, a confidant that they, God is using them in His wisdom and in His grace to transform me. We are to live lives not of self-control, not only of self-control, but we are to live lives of discipleship, and we are to live lives of service. Live lives of service. We see this in how the older women are to teach younger women. That's, a, that's an act of service. It's an act of discipleship, yes, but it's an act of service as well. To bring a, a young lady beside you and to say, Let's live life together. Let's serve together. Let's talk about hard things together. Let's talk about great things together. We see it in, how, in, in all of these, in showing in the pastor himself, to show yourself in all respects a model of good works. That we may serve the congregation. We see it maybe most clearly in those when he speaks to those that are servants of men. That they are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. We are to serve one another for the glory of God. Ephesians, again, if you go back to, to chapter 5, you'll see in Ephesians, that's one of the main points of that whole chapter. Is that we are not to think too much of ourselves, but rather we are be, to be willing to be submissive to one another and to serve one another that the grace of God may abound in our lives. So how do we do all of these things? Why do we do all of these things? Yes, we do it to adorn the doctor of God, but how is it all possible, you might ask? 
is all possible because the church lives in the light of grace. I love the second, I love this whole chapter, but I love that Paul stops what he is writing and and giving instruction to these six groups. And he stops there and he says, for the grace of God. He gives us the why and the how of living a Christian life. I have good news, friends. Grace has come. We should be excited about that statement. If we believe that Scripture is true and that all of us have sinned and therefore have earned the justice of God, then we should be excited about grace. It should be on the tips of our tongues. It should be what we talk about. This grace thing that God has done in our lives That no longer do we have to fear the judgment seat of God, but now we can approach His throne boldly because of the blood of Jesus Christ. No longer do we have a relationship as, as a king to a traitor, but now we have a relationship as a king to a son. That's an incredible, incredible transformation that He has done in our lives. How has this grace come then? How how have we seen this happen? We have seen it come through Christ. He says in verse 11 that grace has appeared. Dropping down to verse 14, he says that it's uh, that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory, uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for us. Christ came. God came in the flesh. He appeared to us. He made Himself known to us. He talked with us. He pointed us to Himself. He talked to us of grace and mercy and love. He made Himself tangible and approachable. He appeared. He could have stayed away. God could have created the heavens and the earth and He could have just walked away from it. He could have created the heavens and the earth and placed man in it and then when man chose to sin, when everything went to, uh, went to pot, He could have said, you have made your own mess. You are on your own. But that is not what God did. In His grace, He chose to appear to us. And He has interacted with humanity throughout its existence and continues to do so today and continues to desire to do so in your life. He appeared. He gave Himself up. He gave Himself up for it. We just read that um, just a moment ago in verse 14. If you were with us last year when we went through the Gospels uh, together, one of the things that we stressed as we got towards the end of, of that time together is that Jesus Christ was not a victim on the cross. That Jesus Christ was not a martyr. But that He willingly laid down His life. Pilate, the Roman governor, tells Jesus at one point, don't you know that I have the power to free you? And Jesus' response is, you don't have anything. You don't have any power. It's been given to you. It's been given to you. 
And the point being that Jesus Christ was not under arrest in the sense that He could have walked away at any point and said, this is not worth it, but that His grace and His mercy and His obedience to the Father led Him to give Himself up for us voluntarily. He was under no coercion. He was under no obligation to do so. He gave Himself up so that He might redeem us. Verse 14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. We kind of had a silly example this morning with the kids about redeeming someone from a punishment. But when we really begin to soak in the level of justice that is due us for rejecting the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is astounding. It it should blow our minds. His redemption. Probably one of the most beautiful pictures of this in Scripture is in the book of Hosea. Hosea has a wife who is unfaithful to him and she walks away from Hosea and she finds herself, long story short, on the auction block of slavery. She is rightfully there. She has made some life choices that have put her there. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. But it's just. Hosea could have reacted in a lot of different ways to that. But Hosea goes and he takes his money and he gives pretty much everything that he has so that he can buy her back so that he can free her from those consequences. He pays a debt that she could not, so that he could take her home. I think that's the incredible spot. It's one thing to set someone free. It's another thing to bring them home. Christ has redeemed you. He has paid for you. He has set you free. And his desire is to bring you home. Grace has come. Grace comes through Christ. He has appeared. He gave Himself up. He is redeemed. He also purifies. Look at there at the end of that verse 14. It says, He has redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people. To purify for Himself a people. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. We alluded to it earlier, but in Ephesians 5, again, Paul opens this idea up. He says in 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ has done this remarkable act of grace and then He has not only paid for our debt, He has not only set us free, but He has washed us clean. He has purified us. That, so that when He returns in all of His glory, so that when He returns with that new heaven and new earth, that it may be for those that are faithful a joyous occasion of entering in to the perfect, the perfect eternal life. 
with the perfect Savior. He purifies us. I think of as well this morning of the story of the prodigal son who walks away from the father, who takes his inheritance before his father has passed away, and then he wastes it until the point when he finds himself in dire straits with the pigs in their pen, eating their slop, and he realizes that it's time to go home. He goes home desiring not to get his old life back. He understands that he has forfeited that, but he desires to go back as a servant. But as he approaches close to the home, his father runs up to him and embraces him and does not allow him to finish his words, but rather says, go grab new garments. Go grab the ring. Place it on his finger. Go get the fatted calf and sacrifice him. This father says, let's clean you up. (laughs) You've been gone, but you've come home. Let's clean you up. It's for the sake of the individual. It's also for the sake of God. The father probably doesn't want to smell his stinky son the whole time. He's glad he's home, but hey, you're home. Let's clean you up so that we can celebrate this rightly. In the same way, God has redeemed us. He has called us home. And so that we may enjoy that moment, He is purifying us. He is changing us. Which brings us to my next point. Grace does indeed change us. It does indeed change us. We're going to go through these rather quickly. But grace, first, it saves us. We've already talked about this point, but... It says there in verse 11, for grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Friend, maybe you are sitting here and these are new words to you. Maybe these are old words to you, but you have never allowed them to penetrate your mind and your heart. You've never thought about them in a light where you understand the justice of God and the grace of God. This morning, He offers an invitation to save. An invitation for you to have a different life and a different outcome. For you to live eternally with Him in heaven. Grace saves us. And grace trains us. Looking there, continue on in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It changes us and it trains us in the here and now as God begins to transform us into the image of Christ slowly but surely. We begin to have different desires How is it that we live lives that adorn the doctrine of God? How is it that we live lives of self-control and discipleship and service? It is by the grace of God that we no longer desire what the world desires, but we desire the things that He desires. So friend, if you find yourself struggling with those things, pray for grace. Pray for grace. Paul finds himself with a thorn in the flesh and he prays that God would remove it. And what is God's response? My grace is enough. Ask Him for more grace. Allow it to transform how you think and how you act and how you serve and how you love. 
allow the reminder of what Christ has done for you to impact how you live for others and how you live for Him. Grace saves us, grace trains us, and grace gives us hope. Grace gives us hope. It says there in, the, in verse 13, backing up just a little bit, that we are to do these things in the present age and we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace gives us hope. Life has plenty of moments that likes to steal that. There are times in life that are just difficult. I'm not saying anything you don't already know and probably have already experienced. But as Christians, as those who believe in Jesus Christ and believe that He is returning, we have hope. We have joy. Even in the most difficult of times, we look to the future not with dismay, not with worry. We look to the future and we say, Lord, come quickly that we may know Your presence. That we may know You in the fullness of Your presence. Grace gives hope when there is none. Grace gives joy when it seems in small supply. So what do we do in the meantime, friends? What do we do while we wait? What do we do while we hope for that great promise to be fulfilled? We are zealous for good works. This is why Christ has redeemed us. It's why He's purified us. So that we may desire the things that He desires. Let us look to His Word and say, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to live? And let us be passionate about those things. Not as things that we check off a list. Not as things that are obligations. But as things that we truly desire in our lives. Let us declare this grace that we've been given. To announce it from the rooftops that God has given us grace. And that it has changed our lives. Sadly, I think one of the reasons that we do not share grace is because we don't understand how it has changed us or we don't think it has or maybe the deeper truth is that we have not experienced it yet let us look deep into our own hearts and our own lives allow scripture to speak to us about the great things that grace has done in our life so that we may proclaim it well and let us understand that we do it with power says there in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Taking you back to Matthew 28, just for a moment, and we'll end with this. Jesus is speaking at the end of Matthew, and he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim the grace of God, when we live differently than the world lives, let us remember that we do so not with our own authority and not on our own power, but we do it through the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And there is no one that can have victory over Him. 
The battle has already been won. So let us go boldly. Let us go with confidence to say, I know this great truth. I know this great gift that you can have. Let's share it well with one another and with those that are outside these walls. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. If nothing else, my prayer is this morning that we would be reminded of God's great grace in our lives and what He has saved us from and what He has promised to us and the great hope that we have and that it would cause us to sing well. That it would cause us to respond with gratefulness and thanksgiving to what He has done in our lives. Maybe this morning you have not experienced that, then we would again extend that invitation that Christ extends to have a relationship with Him, that this morning that you would know Him, that you would say, I'm not going to live this anyway anymore. I want to follow Jesus, and I'm going to trust His grace. If you'll do this this morning, then you can know Him. You can know these things that we've talked about this morning. Maybe this morning it's just to say, I want to have more of that to live a life of self-control, to live, to, to live a life of discipleship, to live a life of service, that I may adorn well the doctrine of God our Savior, that I may be attractive to others, that they may know Him as well. And let us pray that prayer for more God's grace. Let me pray. Father, we come before You this morning. We thank You for this time You've given us. Again, we thank You for Your great and Your incredible Word that speaks to us. We thank You for Your grace. Lord, we would never make heaven on our own. We would never know you except for as judge on our own. And yet you have seen fit to love us and to bestow grace and mercy upon us that we may know you as adopted sons and daughters, heirs to the throne in your great kingdom. Father, I pray, help us to rejoice and to serve you well. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning.